From the Oxano Podcast Network, welcome to My Ministry Breakthrough, hosted by me, Brian Rose. This podcast is all about pastors sharing unfiltered stories of moments large and small, of times when the fog of ministry chaos clears and breakthrough clarity happens. You know, not everything that's happening now needs to get done, and not everything that needs to get done is happening now. And I think it was so easy. One of my very first reviews I ever had was years into ministry. I've not had that many personnel reviews, but uh, a really great piece of advice that a leader I serve under gave me is he said, Phil, uh, you, you run pretty hard and you have lots of things you care a lot about, but it's it's not always easy for people around you to detect what's most important um, because everything seems really important. Hmm. And so I think it was really clarifying for me to say, hey, how do I narrow the focus? Not only for my own pace, not only for my own ability to accomplish tasks or to move the ball forward in particular issues, but like my leadership and the influence that I have, no matter what role I'm in, I'm setting the pace for somebody else or for somebody else. Thanks for checking out another episode of My Ministry Breakthrough. Real quick, before we jump in, first, if you've not taken a couple minutes to rate and review us on iTunes or in the Google Play Store, would you consider it? We love hearing from our listeners, and those simple acts will help other leaders get to hear some really cool stories of breakthrough, like the one you're about to hear today. Second, in this episode, you're going to hear Pastor Phil Eubank mention the Horizon storyline, or the 1414, a lot. That's a bit of inside baseball for a strategic visionary planning tool that Will Mancini unpacks in his book, God Dreams. It's also a process that our Oxano Navigator team helps to install in churches of every shape and size from coast to coast. Some insider terms in this episode, and I just wanted you to understand what we are talking about before we get into it. In fact, you'll hear that this is a big part of the passion and how Eastern Hills goes about reaching the seeking and lost in Denver. They work really hard to make sure that an outsider to faith and the church, even atheists, can be challenged to pursue a next step with God. The passion for tearing down barriers of understanding, not using words like bulletin, and not doing activities like the stand and shake moment are important to Phil and the Eastern Hills team. Next steps are not often safe, but that doesn't mean the church cannot be a safe place to take them. We get a lot into the systems and processes of leadership. Phil is a natural at leveraging systems to reinforce and sustain culture. We even talk about what his expectations are for the eHills team to answer an email, a text, or a call in a timely manner, and why that has implications on their overall effectiveness. Maybe most exciting, Eastern Hills has a vision for a different kind of church in Denver, a church that is contextually responsive in every community and impacting those who are far from God, but close to his people. As my wife Kelly describes it in a very Denver, Colorado kind of way, this episode is a hearty stew with lots of meat and very little broth. Leaders, there's a lot of breakthrough in this one. So lean in and listen up to my ministry breakthrough with Phil Eubank, Senior Pastor of Eastern Hills Community Church in Aurora, Colorado. 
Phil, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, great to be here in Denver, Colorado. Beautiful Denver, Colorado. Now, you guys are in a suburb. Tell us where you are, located yeah. in the city. Yeah, so we're in southeast Aurora, which is essentially southeast Denver, about 25 minutes outside the city. Okay, so Eastern Hills Community Church, Denver, Colorado. Uh, tell us a little bit about the, the church. Give us a kind of a three-minute rundown of how you got here and, and the story of Eastern Hills. For sure. So Eastern Hills as a church has been around for about 35 years. Uh, we have been in this location for about 10 years. Um, and I arrived a little over two and a half years ago. Our community right around us is 92% unchurched. Most of that 92% is de-churched, post-churched. People that had you know experience growing up in Roman Catholicism or kind of some form of faith. And then at some point, they got hurt or it wasn't helpful, and so they walked away. And um, most of the churches in our area are significantly smaller and kind of cater to people that have stuck with a particular approach uh, or denomination. And so Eastern Hills is unique because uh, we really long to see people who are close to us and far from God, people that have given up on God or walked away from church, um, be able to give them one more shot. And so we talk to teams a lot, whether it's our staff or our point crew, and say, hey, today is somebody's last chance that they're given to God. And so we yeah. take that really seriously, whether it's them driving onto our campus or walking through our doors or even checking things out online. Uh, we really want to make sure that we remove every possible barrier between them and hopefully hearing the voice of God in their life. What's the significance there? Because I would I would think that in an area like Denver, kind of you think about the West, you think about a lot of people that have not really had any church experience, but you say there's a lot of church experience here in the unchurched population. What's the significance of that for you and kind of in your background, your history? Is it, has it changed how you do some things? Has it changed how you respond or is that pretty natural who you are? Yeah. I mean, I think we lived in Seattle for eight and a half years before we were here. And so I think um, there was a natural push for us to care about people who weren't in church, who didn't know Jesus. Um, in Seattle, it's probably a higher percentage of people that have no faith background than it is here. But, you know, I'm um, in my kind of early to mid 30s and, and I just have the personal experience of watching friends and watching family members and watching people that I know well walk away from church. And and I think they're they're walking away from church for all the wrong reasons. They're walking away. What do you from, mean? They're you walking mean? away from church for, um, you know, what they remember it being for traditions that, in my opinion, are not worth keeping, weird hangups that have nothing to do with the Bible, nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with the better life they can experience in Him. Um, and so, you know, they go, this wasn't that helpful. And I, and I bet if I had their experience, I wouldn't find it that helpful either. And so uh, we really want to show that following Jesus is a better kind of life, that what Jesus said, right, He's not come um, that we would just have life, but that we would have life to the full, and that's now and forever. And so I think um, yeah, does it change how we approach ministry? Absolutely. Uh, we can't make assumptions. We can't make assumptions about what people know. But I would argue in 2018, no one should be doing that. I mean, if you care about people who don't go to church yet or who have given up on church a while ago, they're biblically illiterate. They're skeptical. They're Googling every claim you make. And so if you're not approaching those conversations with those lenses on, um, I think the assumptions you're making about who's in the room you're already starting by creating barriers that I don't think Jesus ever did. So how do you, what's it look like on the ground level to take those barriers down? Give us an example of on a week to week basis, something you would do differently because of that. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I think for us, there are some really basic things that we made changes on really early for that particular reason. Um, I think um, whether that's like our lobby, uh, trying to make every sign that someone sees understandable for somebody that doesn't normally come to church. What's uh, give me, give me an example of the non understandable signs. Are there some that were, uh, I mean, <laughs> I think for us, like if you've been in church your whole life, you, you don't think anything of like, Oh, that's the sign for the narthex. Like, what does that mean? Or yeah. fellowship hall. Like those are weird words. Yeah, somebody, fellowship hall is right. not like, I'm going to go looking for that. Right. That sounds like there's, there's, yeah. there's a cult that meets there. So, yeah. and sometimes uh, there is. <laughs> yeah. <and> so <laughs> I think um, trying to remove as many of those, barriers service elements for us um we as a church for years had some stuff like um our all of our offering that went to other places either in our community or around the world once a month we passed around a second bucket so they happened immediately in succession of one another you'd pass around one set of buckets and then another set of buckets which for unchurched people their number one apprehension with church is all they're interested in is my money. And so what we did is once a month, we, we affirmed that assumption twice. Yeah, you passed the bucket twice uh, right? as if the first time yep. wasn't enough. And so we now, just, is that something that comes out of the faith tribe that, that you guys are a part of? Or yeah, is that, yeah okay. for sure. That's a denominational thing to a certain extent. Not everybody does it that way, but um, it had become certainly part of our tradition because of that. And then really what was happening was we just weren't giving that much to partners. Um, and so we started saying, hey, if, if we believe in these partnerships, um, we should be giving real resources to them. If we really as a community say, hey, we believe for everybody sitting or everybody that watches stuff online or everybody that would follow Jesus and call our church home, we believe that giving is better than getting. If we believe that, then we should model it. And so um, we just kind of started walking our walking our talk a little bit. Um, and then in addition to that, one of the other things that uh, we caught some heat on early on is we got rid of meet and greet or what I call grip and grin. Uh, grip and grin. Because right? <laughs> if, uh, if you're an unchurched person yeah. and like you have no context in your life where that happens and essentially every survey ever taken for somebody that doesn't normally come to church, hey, what's the most uncomfortable part? The weird part where I have to stand up and shake someone's hand. We have a guy on staff that he always asks the question like, wouldn't it be weird if you were like at the movie theater and like previews finished and the movie's about to start and somebody like walks in and it's like, hey, everybody just want to take a second. Welcome to the movies. Would you do me a favor? Set your popcorn down, stand up, shake some random strangers around you, answer this weird question, maybe hug a few of them and then we'll watch them. Like it's weird. It's a weird thing. It doesn't <laughs> actually create community. We've set the bar way, way too low for that if that's how we're going to accomplish it. Um, and so those were just two, uh, like you would think wouldn't make that big of a difference, wouldn't create a big uproar. But, um, you know, the the document we hand people when they walk into the room, we don't call that a bulletin. We call it a program because bulletin is a weird word that unchurched people don't know. <laughs> uh, we have a segment early on in every one of our services where we welcome people who are new and we explain what's going to happen in terms of like, how long is this going to take and what are you about to experience? And if we're going to sing a song that has weird words in it, we define them for you. Um, and so I think, you know, tell, Keller talks about how do you make sure that things are evangelistically understandable? Doesn't mean you, you do necessarily even that different stuff yeah. or certainly doesn't yeah. mean that you're dumbing things down. But you have to explain it so that they can understand it so that you give them an opportunity to engage at whatever level they're ready to or comfortable with. I would think that in doing that, you've got to have a couple stories of just, you know, 
some real cool stuff happening when people return to the church, return to God in some senses there. Is there anything that just comes right off the top of the head of just, you know, obviously, you know, protect the names, but just, right, you know. Right. Well, I think one of one of a recent story that's one of my favorites since I've been here. Uh, I was I was at a grocery store getting tea for my mother in law who was coming in to visit, and of course, such a sweet, such right? A sweet <laughs> exactly right. Good job. Um, and so I, I was leaving pretty late, and there was this family that was walking in, and I just heard him say, uh, "Hey, Pastor Phil," and I looked up and I said, "Oh, hey guys!" And just a grocery store in our community, and uh, he said, "Hey, as a family." Uh, we go to Eastern Hills. And I said, so great, man. That's awesome. Really glad to meet you guys. And he said, um, my wife and my son, who are both right next to him, uh, they're Christians um, and they love it. He said, uh, I'm an atheist. And I was like, man, that's awesome. Like, thank you for sharing that, you know? And he said, um, thank you for not making me feel stupid. Mm-hmm. He said, thanks that I, it can be a safe place for me, like wherever I'm at. And I just thought, that's the kind of church we want to be. Like, we want to yeah. be the place that, it's not like turn or burn every weekend that we recognize there's a path for people to take. And if they walked away from God, it took them a little while to do that. And it's going to probably take them a little while to walk back. And for a lot of them, it's about rebuilding trust, broken trust in church, broken church and broken trust in leaders. Um, and so I just, man, it was such an encouraging, um, yeah, such an encouraging story for me. I think another one that, um, that, that really uh, kind of struck me recently was a little bit on the other side. Um, and that's a couple that are much older in our church, probably late seventies, Norm and Barbara, their names. And I remember they asked us to dinner, my wife and I, and we had dinner with them. And they're telling us about they're in their retirement years, all the stuff they're doing. They're going to vocal band. You guys went to tours. dinner like four o'clock. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they're going to like, you know, Gaither vocal band reunion tours and, uh, they're like, oh, we love these choirs. And as a church, like that's none of what we do. <laughs> You're waiting and, for the punchline, like, huh? <laughs> and so I just said, do you guys, and they're super positive, super kind people. And I said, um, do you guys like our church? Like, do you, do you like how we do stuff? And they said, well, oh no, like none of our, it's not about like our preferences are not being met, uh, was essentially what they said. But what they said was, if we have to trade having church the way we want it, like we have lots of friends that go to those churches, those churches are dead. And so if we have to trade church the way that we want it to be in a place where God is moving, like it's not even a question. And so for me, I was like, hey, can I just walk around with you on the weekend and introduce you to some people? But uh, I, <laughs> I know some people that need to hear that. They, they, you're need, saying, right? they need your message. Yeah, uh, yeah. But I think that was, you know, those those stories for me kind of represent both sides of the religious spectrum Mm -hmm. of somebody that maybe would not feel comfortable in church and then somebody that would feel very comfortable in kind of classic church. And our heart is to say, let's all point to Jesus together. Let's make it possible to follow Jesus with as few barriers as possible, whether you've been following him for six decades or you're not yet following him. I think that's the kind of follower that Jesus is looking for. Was Eastern Hills a more traditional church before you got here? Has it been in transition? I mean, so uh, Eastern Hills has always been a more modern church for 35 years. Really, our heartbeat as a church has been to reach out to our community. It's one of the things that's allowed Eastern Hills uh, to grow and thrive in our community long before I got here. Uh, And I think that came from strong leadership and um, just great people who had a heart to do that. Uh, I think that there was... Um, I would say kind of a, because of a longer transition, there were more pent up needs for change. 
um, just for because of the circumstances, there were things that didn't get done for a little while. And so things had kind of stacked up. You stepped into that. You and, for, yeah. yeah and, and I also didn't come from a CRC background. And so some of the things. CRC, that, uh, Christian Reform. Christian Reform yeah, Church, yeah, which Dutch is Reform. denomination. Yep, yep. Yep. Um, and so I, I didn't come from that background. And so a lot of the things that for folks that maybe had been in leadership and had that background themselves that I would say kind of just everything looked like the wallpaper to them because it's how they were. Mm. Uh, they didn't look like the wallpaper to me because I walked in with assumptions like we all do, but my assumptions were different. And so I think as a team, we all kind of looked at some of the same problem sets and we were able to benefit one another uh, because the composition of all of our perspectives made for a much clearer outcome. How did you know where to start? Where did you, I mean, it seems like, you know, you step into some things, you know that it had been needing some change? Was there anything that you found was helpful that was like, hey, I'm so glad I did this? Or the flip side, I wish I had done this. Yeah. So before I came here, I was an executive and teaching pastor. Okay. And so uh, there were like lots of just organizational health things that hadn't been done from job description and org chart stuff to strategic planning to that. Those things were um, pretty easy to jump into because there was so much low hanging fruit. And um, I think that the staff had um, experienced such a long season without kind of a present senior leader in the transition that I think it was twofold. One was driving for organizational health. And then I think at the staff level, it was um, how do I show and be present and care? Uh, and then I think overall as a church, it was hey, we're going to talk about where we believe God's calling us to go as a church, which really was not a new direction. I mean, it was the heartbeat of our church for a long time, Um, but that we were going to talk about that and not get tired of talking about it. And I think Eastern Hills, especially in the transition, like lots of churches in transition, wrestled with, hey, this is where we're going. And six months from now, it's still where we're going. And a year from now, it's still where we're going because there was so much uncertainty. And so I think that there was a lot of trust that we got to build together Early on, um, we kind of created this rallying cry around our, our around kind of a strategic outpost for us of, of reach out where we say uh, the gospel is for everyone. And so that was kind of our rally cry for a good 12 months. Um, and it informed decisions that we made and it let us make some decisions that I think may have been more controversial if that wasn't a primary lens that we were looking at things through. So you kind of coalesced everybody. You kind of pointed everybody this common lens they had. Hey, reach out is important to us as a church. It's always been important to us as a church. Right. Beat that drum for a little bit is kind of reminded everybody that's everybody's seeing the same thing and then started to filter some of those early changes through that lens. You got it. And really, that's what we've done. So now two and a half plus years in every year, we've kind of taken one of our strategic anchors, reach out, grow deep and partner with family. So your strategy and kind of mm-hmm. vision and frame so, language. So we basically just take one a year and say, hey, how can we frame this into some one-year goals, into a one-year focus uh, that lets us, I would say, build definition to that strategic anchor? Uh, Because those were words that were literally on the wall when I got here, uh, but there wasn't a lot of supportive tissue sitting underneath them. And so um, I think because there was already buy into the concept, we were able to move a lot further, a lot faster in adding definition when they became our focus. What's a defining day in these last couple of years you've been here? Give us a, an example of like, hey, this was a moment where things, a breakthrough day right, right. for you. Well, there's two. I would say one happened a year ago um, and it was right when we were launching kind of a capital campaign. Um, we had had somebody early on, her name's Erin, 
that had come to me and said, hey, my husband's an atheist. Um, I'm finding God in this place and not quite sure how to engage. Um, would you pray with me? Would you pray for my husband? Um, and it, it got hard. Like it was it was kind of an ongoing conversation. She would check in with me. And I'll remember the day forever where she came up to me in tears and said, we prayed together last night for the first time. Mm-hmm. And um, and then he had started to take some steps towards God and in faith. And, um, and then one of the nights where we had kind of a family meeting to talk about this heartbeat for the future, some of the language that I used is I said, hey, 10 years ago, we moved into this building, a smaller group of people made a greater sacrifice. They didn't know you, but they loved you. They didn't know your name yet, but they knew that you had one and that you mattered to God. And, uh, and so afterwards, him and his wife were in this meeting and I just see him walking up and I'm like, oh my gosh, his faith is so fragile right now. And I have just asked him. For he money. just made the big pitch. Terrible. <laughs> and so uh, he, he walked up and he's the one that started talking. He said, you know what I'm excited about? And I thought this could go a lot of different ways. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he said, I love it. Um, cause, cause 10 years from now, when you talk about 10 years ago, there were people that didn't know you that loved you and they invested in you. He said, you're gonna be talking about us. And I mean, I was like, you know, I mean, it's like everything, like that moment of like, wow, I was trying to manage the situation. I was trying to think, how am I going to respond to a bad uh, reaction? And just God got a hold of his heart and and something that we had hoped for and believed for, for him just months ago, he had already grown the faith in him to believe for a decade to come what God could do through his faithfulness. And so uh, that was a big deal. I think that grew my faith a lot that day. Uh, I think another one was when we came to Eastern Hills, I knew, hey, we need to have some focus points and like kind of this one year stuff. And I knew 90 days. I'd always kind of thought about 90 day goals. Um, but that was pretty much as far as my organizational leadership went. I'd never been a lead pastor before. And so a lot of times yeah. I was implementing somebody else's idea. Um, and so on a Sunday, a random Sunday, uh, our executive pastor, Steve, said, hey, I was just talking to Will Mancini and he's doing a conference, really a training session down in the Springs. And he was asking if we knew of anybody that maybe would be willing to let him kind of demo this new thing, this new Horizon storyline for all these consultants. And Steve's like, I know a church that's interested in that. And so I think it was all of 12 hours later that our leadership team was down in the Springs Um, And I think for us, the unity that we felt around kind of a crash course in the Horizon storyline, time with Will, um, and I think just the amazing clarity that the Horizon storyline has created for us as an operational kind of organizational operating system, uh, it's it's changed the way we do ministry. So, um, you know, now there's like a big wall in our office where the Horizon Storyline lives. And it gets yeah, we just walk past the big chalkboard wall mm-hmm. to get into this room we're in right now. And you guys have the 1414 Horizon Storyline up there. Why is it important for that to be <laughs> so big on the wall? I mean, it is right. there. It is giant. Yeah, I mean, I think... Floor to ceiling. Right, yeah, yeah. I think for us, when I got here, everybody, you know... This is just where we were. And, and frankly, most churches are in this spot. And you can do good ministry this way. Uh, I just don't think you can do great unified ministry this way. Everybody was kind of doing what was right in their own eyes. Everybody was uh, kind of chasing whatever specific ministry program they thought was best or however they thought they were going to be able to achieve the milestones that they'd set for themselves. Um, but saying, hey, we want to have this 
unifying direction. And that's more than just a slogan. It's more than just a catchphrase. It's got to be something that holds us all accountable. And if Mm -hmm. we can't draw a line from what we're doing as a community to what we said God called us to do as a community, we need to take a really hard look at it. And so uh, I think for us, it has just been so helpful and so clarifying. There is not a layer of our organization that is not informed by, influenced by uh, the Horizon storyline. And so, I mean, if I could, I'd put it on the wall of every staff member because it's that important. And uh, I think the the caution of mission drift that we all wrestle with in ministry is so tempting. And so to say like, look, we, I think one of the things that I had to come to a deep realization of, somebody told me right after I came here, it's kind of a, uh, kind of a mentor type figure for me, uh, he said in his own transition, one of the things he didn't realize is everybody says, I want, I want vision. And they, they, you know, they mean it. They say, I want vision, but what they, maybe they don't even realize that they're saying is I want my vision. Like I want what I've been waiting for. I want what I've been longing for you to bring to this place or longing for whoever to bring to this place. And there's no way to satisfy all of those expectations. We have to go where God's calling us to go. And hopefully we're discerning that together and chasing after it. But I think we all feel that pull back to what's my thing, what's my hobby horse, what's my specific vision that I want to pursue by default. Um, And I think the Horizon storyline holds us accountable to say, no, 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 like not 30 directions, one direction. And so not the band, but the direction. Uh, I'm I'm kind of more of a more of a Backstreet Boys sure, fan myself. Sure. But what's something you do to help keep them focused on that? I mean, obviously, that mission drift is happening. Everybody's kind of pursuing, especially when you've got high-capacity leaders. I know you're building a pretty high-capacity team who naturally kind of, you know, want to do that. Is there something you do as a senior pastor, something in your role that that points people back to to this shared horizon storyline of where God is leading us? Or is there is there something that you've picked up along the way? It's like, hey, I can I can kind of sense when people are drifting. Well, I mean, I think one of the things that we well, I say two things. One of the things we've done as a staff recently is kind of restructured um, how our staff time together works. Yeah. And so there's two ways that we do that. One is like a large group once a month time of worship. Somebody that's not me talks about some of our values and how those influence how we work as a team together. And then we just have some fun time where we get to eat a meal or hang out. Um, and so then, that's a monthly kind of all staff mm-hmm. worship values, right. Fellowship. Yep. And non-standard worship leaders, typically yeah. non-standard yeah. communicators. We want to try to kind of raise the bench through that. A but I mean, they've got to be able to sing and right. play guitar, right. right? I mean, although they let me play guitar every now and then. So oh, yeah. the standards yeah. free low. Um, and then I think the other stuff that we've done week to week, we've shifted more and more uh, to really beginning by asking the question, hey, what are some stories of life change that we're seeing? Um, and I think more than anything, it provides a weekly check-in to say, man, what what's God doing? I think in ministry, it's so easy uh, to get consumed by the activity and lose track of God's productivity in the lives of people. And we get consumed by the activity and lose track of God's productivity. Right, like if God's not generating stories, right, if, if lives aren't being changed, I think one what we say a lot is either either we're not paying attention, which shame on us, like we, we should be paying attention. God's changing lives in front of us. Or we should be paying attention to the, the fact that what we're doing is not working. Yeah. Um, and so I think asking that question every week has been a really healthy shift for that staff team. And it matters. Like, I mean, 
tears get shed and people are like gripped by them. And so, uh, and the line I say a lot at the end of that is like, let's never lose track. These stories matter uh, because if we're not doing this for life change, church is a terrible hobby. <laughs> and, and frankly, America has given up on church as a hobby. If it doesn't help, if it doesn't make a difference, if it doesn't change lives, it's just another hobby. And, and we wonder why we get frustrated at people at churches that treat it like a country club. But I think when as churches, we forget to measure and monitor life change, we've settled for it being a hobby too. And so I think that's, uh, I think those two things have really helped at a staff level. And then organizationally, um, you know, the, the horizon storyline for us doesn't stop at the 90 day mark. Everybody individually has uh, one year goals that they're talking about and that are measuring back to that. And then they so have, they, everybody's got a one year goal that relates back to the one year goal you got on it. the storyline. And they actually have several one year goals. Okay. So I'm going to point to that. And then, um, uh, and then we have six by sixes. So what are the six things that you're working on for the next six weeks? And okay. every team has those and every team reviews those and they're all like available on Google drive. And you're looking backwards at how you just did and forwards at what you're doing next. And uh, supervisors are, are basically saying, Hey, how, how do these connect with where we're going? And so I think telling those stories and generating the, the, the path of like, what does it mean for us uh, to, to try to work together as we look at that stuff has helped. Um, and then I think holding one another accountable organizationally to say, Hey, we have a stewardship. Like this is, this is God's resources. Most people that come to our church and volunteer, they're helping above and beyond a job or they're, they're helping above and beyond whatever they're doing all day, every day, working tired hours. We're in a unique position where we get paid to do this. Uh, we better make sure that we're using those resources the very best way with our time. That's great. So take me back to the six by sixes. Those just unpack that one more time. Six by sixes, because I think there's some real like practical, mind-blowingly practical sure. application here for, for other leaders. They relate back directly to your horizon storyline and every ministry has them. Just walk through that one more time. So every individual on our entire staff has a six by six. Everybody. All the time. Organization so wide. Two six by sixes make up a 90 day increment. And okay. so uh, and six by six is six things that I'm doing over the next six weeks. So okay. it's a spreadsheet and there's like a, I, I have, we have one that starts October 1st. And so I was just working on it today. And a lot of times it relates to categories, like categories of your job. What are the things you're doing for those categories? But then we're also asking the question, how does this point back to, or several of the things in your six by six point back to 90 day goals or some aspect of the horizon storyline. And so if okay. you have a rogue staff member, that gets down two or three six by sixes and they're going in a complete strange opposite direction. In my experience in ministry, if you have a review or an annual or semi-annual review, you, you may catch that by the time that comes around. But I think this allows us to make mid course corrections a lot more regularly. And I think it allows staff members to do two things. One, they're held accountable that they get good work done. And then secondly, if, if somebody, you know, hypothetically me, ask them to do a hundred things, they say, well, okay, so, so here's my six by six. What do I not do to get this extra thing that you're asking? So I think for, for staff members, it allows them to take greater ownership of what's kind of in their work portfolio in any given six week period as well. That's great. I, I think that's, that's a missing element in the landscape of church leadership today is sometimes we feel like that level of accountability is constricting and almost limits productivity, almost right. limits creativity. But what I sense from being around you guys is that really opens the door for productivity and creativity. That that six by six, that, hey, listen, we are going to have a structure actually opens the door for 
you guys to be pretty innovative and pretty unconventional. Well, and I think for us, there are times where somebody will say, hey, I have this idea um, and we'll kind of resource their idea. We'll say like, hey, let's put this on your six by six. Spend, you know, 15, 20 percent of your time over the next six weeks on this idea. And it's not just like do everything you always do and add. It's like, no, no, like we all are trying to figure out how to do this. And I think it just keeps a pulse on, hey, how are team members doing? How are yeah. their six by six? Do they have space? Um, it just allows us to, to hopefully monitor the health of our team a little bit easier when we use it the best possible way. Um, what's something your staff does that just really brings you energy? What's something that just kind of as a, as a senior leader just. I mean, I think th- this is the first community that I've been a part of, the first church that I've been a part of um, where I-, I feel like genuinely the limitations are simply us. Right. I think. I've been at churches, I've been given significant leadership opportunities at churches where I I felt a disconnect and I wasn't quite sure what the disconnect was. And I think after coming to Eastern Hills, the thing that I so appreciate about Eastern Hills is that it has a heart to reach people. We have a heart to reach people from the person sitting uh, in the auditorium on the weekend to the person in the community group midweek to the person on staff. Uh, We genuinely say we care about people who are close to us and far from God. And we're willing to take risks to reach them that other churches aren't willing to take. Um, And so that's really fun. But I also think there are personal, I mean, all of us have personal limitations, but every day I work, I I wake up uh, attending and working at the largest church I've ever been a part of. That's, that's my reality every day. Mm -hmm. And, and so I think as a team, it's easy for me to be humble. Like I don't walk into every meeting with every answer because I don't know. Uh, And so when team members walk in and they're not like waiting for a cue from me to share a good idea, uh, they just kind of say, hey, here's what I'm thinking about. And they're innovating. They're coming up with new approaches. I, I love it. I mean, I think it's it, it fuels our whole team. I love it when when I can um, make sure other people receive the credit for their ideas, when I can make sure that as a staff team, we realize how gifted God has made us. Mm-hmm. And I think more and more as we develop leaders in volunteer corps, what we call our point crew, seeing point crew members take greater and greater ownership, come up with ideas. I mean, we have people now two and a half years in that are volunteers on a weekly basis that do more than part-time staff members at churches I've been a part of. And and I just, and, and they're thanking us for giving them the opportunity to do that. And I just think, you know, when, when we read Paul's words that we would equip the saints to do the work of the ministry, uh, I think in large churches, it's very easy to let that go to create an unintentional ceiling that says, well, somebody can volunteer up to this level and then we better give them a paycheck. And I love the fact that um, we've been innovative enough to just think differently and then allow folks that we kind of bring on and grow in leadership to come up with their own ideas that they get to try as well. It hasn't always been that way. It couldn't have always been that way. Is there something you did to help open the door for that Hey, we have to pay people when they get to this level. Hey, no, now we release people to lead even beyond that. Was there something you know? Hey, listen, this was instructive for us. Or, man, I really wish we had done this. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think for us, it was partially fueled out of pain. Okay. Uh, so when I got here, the percentage of our personnel dollars against total giving was just too high. Um, and so I think there was some pain points in that first year of transition where giving was, where our staffing was, that I probably had more leadership capital to make some of those hard decisions. So I, you, I, just, you just eliminated some paid roles. Correct. Yeah. And we tried to do it as graciously as we could, as kindly as we could. 
Um, but I mean, we just couldn't afford yeah. those positions. But it was also informed by a philosophy. It wasn't just, hey, we don't want to pay this person anymore. It was, we can't, we can't hire to task. Like that's not the kind of church we can be. We're already too big for that. And if we're going to grow into who God's called us to be, we have to have leaders. We have to have leaders that build people and build teams, not that are going and doing every individual task. In in my opinion, that that robs from people that just call this church home that want to help, um, and it burns those staff members out. So I, I think it was philosophical, but I think the reason we were able to do it as quickly as we were was because we had pain that required us to. And it and I think every leader <laughs> agrees, right? And it says, yes, that's true. Yes, we've got to do that but yet somehow finds himself still not doing it. Like another week, another month, another year passes, and I've still not made that move. Is it for you guys the pain just was so great? Or, or I mean, what 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 was the secret for y'all? I mean, get help 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 that guy out there that's like, yeah, or that, that girl yeah. out there that's like, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think in some respects we had a pretty difficult pain point, and, yeah. and I think every church will get there, yeah. right? If, if you don't address these problems, it will hurt a lot later to yeah. do it. Yeah. Um, I think the other one is in a couple instances, we just created runways. We had honest conversations. And in, in case, some cases, it was a year to say, hey, how do you as a leader transition to this kind of a role? Or, hey, where are you at in terms of how you think about your staff role here? And so, um, I mean, we tried to be uh, as, as forward thinking as we could be. So if we knew, hey, this person's maybe a handful of years away from retirement, Let's not push them out the door, but let's have a conversation about how their work portfolio changes, how their scope of what they're trying to accomplish on a day-to-day basis changes, how they can hand off things, how they can develop volunteers. And then as people left kind of naturally, we instantly asked the question, how can we restructure our existing staff so that we don't rehire that role? And we just had to ask that question because yeah. we didn't have the dollars to one for one rehire every position. And I think we had some innovation where team members said, hey, here's the thing we're doing one way. We can do it a different way. Here's an approach that we've always done. We can we can approach it differently. But I think whether you have the, the, the impetus of we change this tomorrow or it gets a lot worse or we say, um, you know what, we're going to um, do this over time. I think either way, it's it's all about like what does it mean to take a first step uh, to yeah. actually dealing with it. We have a we have some language here in our values. We say we value steps over statements, right? It's easy to complain to your spouse and say to your husband or wife, like, man, I'm frustrated with this person or this situation or this team or this department. Um, stop talking about it. Just do something. And I think that um, that that might mean a new hire. That might mean transitioning a current hire. Um, there's there's plenty of options. But I think for a lot of us, we're kind of sitting on our hands, waiting for time to solve it, and time rarely does. What I love about that too, Phil, is what I hear underneath it all is this vision, this this heartbeat, as you said, for for the community, heartbeat for people far from God. This this push outward rather than inward that's constantly redirecting. And I know you, you mentioned taking big risks. You said, hey, listen, this is this is compellingly calling us outward. What's what's a big risk? What's a what's something you guys are embarking on right now? What are you looking ahead and saying, hey, listen, we're gonna take this risk. We're going to have pursue this far-fetched idea. We're going to move beyond ourselves in order to rescue and, and, and reach this community. Well, I think in our in our neighborhood, in our area, right now, we've got some projects that are trying to address it. Right now, we're sort of maxed in parking for our facilities. Okay. So especially on Sundays, 
like we're going, hey, we can't like until we have more parking, we can't keep going. So we've got some plans long term to fix that. Uh, but we also started kind of asking ourselves the question, hey, there are hundreds of thousands of people around us uh, that are living without the hope of Jesus in their life. And we want to provide a way for them to know that. And then at the same time, we're also a part of a denomination uh, called the Christian Reform Church. And um, and unfortunately, a lot of Christian Reform churches, both in our community and around the country, um, are, are living with a lot of their best experiences, at least right now, in their rearview mirror. Mm. And there's lots of reasons for that. And um, I think but, that's a nice way to say they're not doing great. I mean, <laughs> so I think we looked at that unique situation and our unique connection to the denomination and said, uh, how can we help? Yeah. How, how can we take, you know, I, I've been in communities where I've watched uh, churches big and small go away. And I've watched, especially in, in highly valuable real estate markets like this one, I've watched their buildings get scraped and something else get built in their place. Or You're bought. saying there's more value for the land underneath right. the building. And so you got there's it. people just waiting for that church to die so they can have the land. Right. And so, you know, for the message and hope of Jesus, for the kingdom of God, we just kind of asked, what would it look like for that neighborhood church with 300 seats in the auditorium that's seating 30 on weekend uh, to be revitalized for a gospel impact to reach a community that's changed dramatically around them? And so we're still very much in the kind of incubation period of planning what it'll look like. Uh, but our hope is to create uh, essentially a network of churches where we would be able to take on some of those churches, adopt them, uh, sort of launch them with their own identity, their own brand, but that they would match our mission. They would match the way we do ministry. Certainly on the front end of that launch, we would launch them with- Carrying some, a lot of the DNA, carrying right. a lot of what makes and, Eastern Hills. Eastern and we Hills. would send a, a core team of folks to that independently named church. And over the course of a number of years, there'd be kind of this opening hand approach where uh, on the front end, you would walk into their auditorium and you would see probably a teacher on a screen or the music would be very similar to what happens on our campus. You'd walk into a kid's environment and they would be covering a lot of the same, if not all the same material. Their, their teams of volunteers would be getting trained the same way where we would be able to infuse essentially a church plant um, with a bunch of the organizational health that we can bring to the table. So it's kind of a hybrid multi-site right. church plant. But launching it at the very beginning, not to stay a campus, uh, and over time, as that church meets health markers and milestones of self-sufficiency, uh, that eventually we would hopefully stay networked together, we would stay partnered together in this mission for our overall community, but that they are their own autonomous, self-sustaining church. And so for us, we looked around at the opportunity of um, dozens of churches in the Denver metro area that, but for the grace of God, are going to fold. And uh, we would love to be used by God to not have our name, not to have our logo, not to have my name, not to have my face on a screen. But when we look back 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, to be able to see a whole bunch of churches that have been revitalized, that have gone from the brink of destruction uh, to new hope and new life that's sustaining in those neighborhoods, uh, to, to redefine for people what it means to follow Jesus again, people that have given up and walked away uh, by hopefully bringing health into those mm -hmm. communities again. So that's that's what we're hoping for. Uh, it's a big risk. Yeah, um, There's lots more questions that we don't know the answers to than that we do. 
Um, but we really feel like it's where God's calling us to go. What's one of the big questions you guys are wrestling with in that right now? Like for you, maybe even just you in your leadership chair. Let's forget the, forget the organization, just you in this kind of opening hand plan. Right. What, what are you personally wrestling with? Well, I think that there, um, anytime you, you take a step like this, uh, I think there's a tension. One is I have to trust people to do a lot of work that I like won't have time to go check on, right? Especially when we decentralize yeah. and now all of a sudden you've got a campus 25 minutes away and there's major construction work going on. My personality is like, I'd like to be there every day. I'd like to, you know, hand me a hammer, let me help. Um, but I can't do both do my job and do that job. And so I think learning what is my lane in this conversation is really important. And then I think also the work that's been necessary here at Eastern Hills over the last two and a half years has been a very full-time job. And so to go from uh, all of my time, 100% of my time being required for this job to creating the margin necessary so that I can do what's necessary um, in scaling and thinking about multiple campuses and lots of different people and different circumstances and different leaders. Uh, I think those are the, those are the two threads I feel pulled on most right now. How do I determine what my lane is and make margin in my current leadership so that I can fulfill this new lane? Is there anything, any resource that's helping you with either of those, either creating the margin or kind of determining your lane? Um, I think the, the process that we're going through with Oxano is helpful okay. uh, in trying to narrow the focus on what our plan is overall uh, we have a unique partnership with uh, North Point, and so we have some great uh, connections and relationships there with leaders that have made this change, mm-hmm. uh, that have given us some good counsel and advice. And then I just have some local folks around here that have had to do this. Um, and, and I think that we know this is a little bit different, kind of at the very inception point of saying this is how we want to do this and um, the, the way we want to go from start. Uh, I, I was in Seattle when things went sideways with Mars Hill. And, uh, I think for me, I'm very reticent to, um, uh, to, to, to like see a personality driven thing get started. And so I'm trying to, um, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to learn the very best lessons I can from the people and circumstances that I'm learning from that have done it in great ways. And then I think I'm trying to take some of those things I've experienced that maybe have left some scars either on me or some people around me and use them as cautionary tales about ways to avoid um, some bad leadership habits. Hmm. If you go back and do one moment over again, let's just say in your whole ministry uh, or, or maybe here, maybe here at Eastern Hills, um, what would it be? What would you say, man, I'd love a mulligan or a do over on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, probably here at Eastern Hills, uh, it would be uh, early on, there was a staff transition that I could have told you we needed to make the first day I was here. Um, And I wish I would have. I couldn't have probably done it the first day, but but I could have done it. That had taken all the change out of your pocket, right? right? I could have done it a lot faster than I did. And it uh, it hurt us. It hurt momentum. Um, And I did it. I think I, I delayed because I hoped that there would be progress. I hoped that there would be change. Um, and frankly, I, I didn't want to deal with the blowback. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the blowback of waiting was so much bigger. And I think the lesson that I learned is that when there's a really hard problem, it just grows. And so, um, you know, the best day to deal with it or start dealing with it is today. And I think now we have so much better conversations, like even when 
uh, staff members transition for any number of different reasons. Um, the vast majority, I think, yeah, the last, my goodness, all the, all the, all the folks I can think of in my most recent memory that have left our staff for one reason or another, taken another role, leave ministry to do something else, whatever they were doing, they still attend our church. And uh, I think that's a great mark of health versus where things were when I got here. And one of the ways that that happens is we just have open and honest conversations uh, about where we are, about where we're going and about what that requires of their leadership. And I think early on, I was sort of like hoping people would connect those dots on their own. Um, but they're underperforming staff members, probably because they don't have that self-awareness. And part of my job, depending on who it is and where they are in the organization, is to help them gain that awareness. And so uh, I wish I could go back yeah. and approach that situation differently. I think vision clarity sometimes polarizes, doesn't it? Sometimes Absolutely. when we're clear about who God has called us to be first on our identity and then where he's called us to be on our direction, it kind of draws a line. Right. And, you know, people... People tend to find themselves on one side or the other, and there's a willingness. To, you know, some are willing to, to make the leap, and some aren't. Well, and I think it's hard in churches that have been through transition because I think sometimes specific models or programs uh, can become really safe places of refuge. Hmm. And so they're— really, What do you mean by that? Models or programs can become— Kind of like, this is the way I'm going to do it. You know, insert brand name of ministry program, right? Yeah. A bunch of churches yeah. do it. We yeah. do it. This is the curriculum we use. This is the program we use. This is the midweek experience that we provide. Whatever it is, we go like, this is the thing. Um, and I think Andy Stanley says, uh, date your model, marry your mission. Yeah. And I think sometimes for folks, they, they get those two confused. And so all of a sudden, the idea of like changing or giving up or giving a season of rest to a specific ministry program becomes very difficult, almost a deal breaker for folks that I think are, are wrapped up in that. So you take you, you take them back to the mission on some levels, right? Right, absolutely. And the mission at Eastern Hills? We exist to invite people to experience that Jesus makes life better. Jesus makes life better. That's a, that's a killer phrase. What's something that's directed that mission recently? Has there been a moment where that mission is just really, even in the last, put you on the spot here, last couple of weeks where you, you, you've made a decision based on that mission versus kind of a model that, that's been existing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think um, we are in a season of a lot of work, like a, a lot of work related to uh, audio video and enhancements throughout our campus. Mm -hmm. I mean, millions of dollars. Um, and I think that a phrase we say a lot uh, around that, and it's kind of evolving a little bit, but we say it might not be for you, but it's good for you. Mm -hmm. um, like it's, it's like taking spiritual vitamins for us to give. And I think that um, helping people to understand, we just turned on kind of online streaming, online campus on the weekend. We went from one camera to nine. We did a renovation of a big video suite. And it's all cool, lots of new toys. And whether it's staff members or volunteers or even part members of the congregation, it's so easy. It's so easy to change that everyone to me, like inviting me. And then all of a sudden, all these improvements, all these enhancements were like, oh, cool. Like I gave money so that I could, no, 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 like that's not... It is good for us. Like, that's awesome. But it's actually not for us. And so continuing to keep our eye on the ball. And this year, we have kind of a key emphasis on who are your key three people, people that God's put on your heart that are close to you and far from God. And so we have a big display in our lobby where people have written out who their key three are. And then we have these big letters that just says family found here. And we're challenging people uh, to pray for those key three, to invest in the lives of those key three, and then to invite those lives into their lives, whether that's a barbecue, whether that's a block party, or maybe one day that's service at church. 
Um, but our hope is that we'll continue to keep our eye on the ball, even as we've done some of these projects and launch stuff in the last couple of weeks. And we'll have some more stuff over the next few weeks. It would be easier. It would be easier to say, hey, this is all for us. Let's make our stuff better. Uh, but that's that's a club, not a calling. That's, that is just not who we are. And so continuing to point on this fact of like we can invest in the here and now or with the here and now we can invest in eternity. And so uh, I think that we're going into a three week kind of re up series on that um, specific initiative over the next three weeks. And that language is it's <laughs> it, it might not be for you, but is good for you is so important, I think, for all Christians to remember that whatever our experience is at church, whatever we're soaking in, we go, I liked it. I didn't like it. It fed me. It was deep. It wasn't deep. I liked worship. I didn't like worship. Like, man, think about the last time you brought an unchurched friend to a service and think like, how was it for them? You know, like Paul in first Corinthians six, he talks about the fact that he's experienced his whole life bound to this law. And now he's experienced freedom. And he's like, you know what I do with the freedom? I exchange this freedom to serve people. I could become all things to all people so that by any means necessary, I might save some. And I just think like that has to be our attitude. We have to reflect the same heartbeat that Paul had. And I think that when we do, our churches naturally point to the community. And I think our churches naturally get built to reach people who are close to us and far from God. Well, that's powerful. And um, I, I, I know that more churches could benefit from hearing that. And there's a lot of great churches out there, but we naturally drift inward. We naturally drift towards uh, the here and now versus uh, in the here and now being an investment uh, for them. Is that, did I get that right? Right. You said investing in the here and now versus say that one more time. How do we use it? What's here and now? How can we invest mm-hmm. in something that's in front of us? That's really for eternity. Hmm. And it's, I mean, it's Matthew 6, right? Yeah. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust will destroy. These will come in and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Because that's the most secure destination for those resources anyway, right? And he talks about all the things people are going to be freaked out about and be, you know, stressed out about. And he said, that's when we get to Matthew 6, right? Seek first, you know, my kingdom, my righteousness, and I'll take care of everything else. And I think for us, we... We make that so self-focused and Jesus is like, no, 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 like take, follow me, follow my example. It's not about you. It's about other people. Well, let, let me go back to three questions I ask every, every guest. Uh, and, and it has to do with that. Like this, this, this first one is, you know, what's one daily or regular habit you practice that keeps you close to that heart of God? Yeah, I mean, I think I learned uh, early in ministry that it was really easy to lose connection to people who are normal people. <laughs> By that, I mean like not church people. Not people. Church people aren't normal? Is that what you're I saying? Mean, we are not normal. <laughs> we, and, we are uh, weird. We are weird. Absolutely. Yeah. We're, we're own we use our own language. We, we wear certain things yes. and don't. Yeah, yeah. Yes, absolutely. Christian subculture is alive and well. And so I think one of the ways that I do that, I'm an early riser. So uh, Like what time? Mm, 4.30 to 5. Okay. And so. Um, Does that mean you go to bed at like? Nine. Nine o'clock? Well, it depends. My wife's a, she's a, she's a night owl. So. Sometimes I'll go crazy, stay up late till like 10. But if if I could just control my schedule, nine. Yeah. So you're going out with Norman ba- Barb. Right, right. You're eating yeah. at 4.30 yeah. and so you're in yeah. bed by 8. So right? They're like okay. my role models. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. And so um, I, I get up really early and I'll go work out. Yeah. And I intentionally work out at a gym and build relationships with people that don't know who I am. I mean, they figured out after a while. 
but they don't know like I'm a pastor or any of that stuff. Um, and, and they're going to swear around me and they're going to be totally normal. And they're going to tell me about how they got wasted the night before. And they're going to say, what do you do? And right. you're going to say, my pastor's like, uh, right. uh, I mean, th- that's the yeah, opportunity yeah, though. I think yeah. for, for me is to see, I mean, we had, uh, just two weeks ago, a trainer, uh, and her husband came to our church for the first time. And, and I, it was the exact same, uh, kind of relationship that just got started yeah. at the gym. And so I, one of my key three is somebody that I work out with every day. Um, and so I'm praying for him and investing in him and inviting him into my life. And um, so I think that's key for me to just stay close to the heart of God. I think it's easy for us as professional Christians to look a little bit more like the religious elite that Jesus seemed a little concerned about a couple thousand years ago. And so uh, I think we have to work hard uh, to avoid that tendency. Uh, I also then kind of get an opportunity on the other side of that. Uh, to, to rest and reflect usually before my first appointment because other people don't get up that early. Uh, yeah. I have time if I'm meeting somebody at church or I'm meeting somebody at a coffee shop, I'll go a half hour, 40 minutes early and I'll have time to study myself personally before kids are up, before the day starts, before there's a crowd. Uh, and that's, I mean, I spent super life giving for me that pattern changes of how I do that. Um, but it's really, really helpful. Uh, and then on Mondays, I don't typically come into the office uh, it's, you know, day after the weekend and I work, but I work off site. And so I go to Denver. I've only been interrupted in downtown Denver a few times by people that know me because it's a little further away. And so I can work and study and just kind of have a chance for me and God. Um, but I do some message prep stuff as well, uh, for somewhere between seven and nine hours, um, yeah. that every week for me that, I mean, it sounds crazy cause I'm studying and I'm doing some work, but for, for my soul in some respects, that's kind of like my reset, kind of like my Sabbath, the rhythm for me weekly uh, to just rest. Uh, and so I, yeah, I, I love that. But I think those are, those are kind of the big ways that have kept me fresh. If you could go back to your first year of ministry and tell yourself one thing, what would it be? Um, I think that everybody wrestles with this, you know, um, but I think it's separating the urgent from the important. You know, not everything that's happening now needs to get done and not everything that needs to get done is happening now. And I think it was so easy. One of my very first reviews I ever had was years into ministry. I've not had that many personnel reviews, but uh, a really great piece of advice that a leader I served under gave me is he said, Phil, uh, you, you run pretty hard and you have lots of things you care a lot about. Uh, but it's it's not always easy for people around you to detect what's most important um, because everything seems really important. Hmm. And so I think it was really clarifying for me to say, hey, how do I narrow the focus? Not only for my own pace, not only for my own ability to accomplish tasks or to move the ball forward in particular issues, but like my leadership and the influence that I have, no matter what role I'm in, I'm setting the pace for somebody else or for somebody else. And, uh, and I think that it can be really dangerous. Including your family. Right. I think it can be really dangerous uh, when I mix up the urgent and the important. There are lots of things now. I mean, I've just disciplined myself. Like email doesn't hit my phone. I can go get it on my phone, but it doesn't. Don't I don't get notifications. I try to turn all notifications that I can off. Like if you have my number and text message me, I'll get it. If you call me, I'll get it. And there's a, a tool that our staff uses to talk back and forth. I'll get that one, but that's it. Social media. Is that Voxer? Yep. Mm-hmm. You guys use Voxer? We, we use yeah. Voxer, yep. Social media, nope. I mean, we use it. I use it, 
but I want to decide when I get to use it. I want yeah. to keep the urgent away. Uh, email, same way. Uh, and so that's been really, really helpful. So those things, I mean, we our phones have literally created a false sense of urgency. 100%. Through, hey, I've got this new email. I've got this new text. I've got this new message. I've got this new DM. I must respond to it. And what you're saying is, is that those are urgent but not important. Right. And I think... One of the things, so for me personally, what I've done is uh, I don't have like an assistant in our building, but I have a. You don't have an office in your building. I, I don't. I have a hallway. So you're you're the pastor, and your desk is sitting in the hallway. You've got you've got direct reports that have nice big offices, yeah. and you're sitting out here in this hallway. That's true. Yeah, I, my philosophy has always been. Um, like if you're in my office, it's really hard for me to leave when I'm done with the appointment. <laughs> and when I'm in your office and I'm done, I can just get up and leave. So when we were starting to run out of offices, I could kind of see the writing on the wall as our staff team was growing and church was growing. And so I just honestly was like, I can give up my office. It's no big deal. So now you can't get cornered. So now I can't get cornered. Yeah. That's that, so that, smart. That's, so, uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, f- for us, there's this really unique challenge that as we kind of think about staffing, how do we continue to uh, grow as a healthy team? How do we continue to work towards the direction that God wants us to be uh, without adding some of that unnecessary complexity? Yeah, and without building in that false urgency that takes really the life out of the important things that we're calling. Well, and that's what I, my so I have a virtual assistant that doesn't work here in our building. She lives in Houston, uh, but she can respond to email for me as well. Um, she can set up calendar appointments for me yeah. as well. And so that's helped. But also for our staff, if this is permission we give to our whole team. We say, hey, for an email, respond within 24 hours. Uh, for a text message or kind of a box type of deal, respond within a couple hours. And then what I say is if I'm calling you, it's because I'm dead somewhere because I make no phone calls. Yeah, yeah. So if I call you, please pick up the phone. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, it's just establishing what is that cadence of what I would yeah. say is kind of safe communication guidelines that everybody feels like they're playing by the same rules. That's great. Is there one book you consistently recommend or give as a gift? Um, I think for kind of younger leaders, I really like H3 Leadership by Brad Lomenick. Um, Humble, Hungry, and Hustle are kind of the way he defines leadership. And um, I just think for younger leaders, especially kind of young millennial leaders, uh, I found that like kind of hunger and hustle component to be lacking. Um, it doesn't mean that it can't be cultivated in them, yeah. but for lots of different reasons generationally, I think that they can be absent. I think for somebody that's more driven, you have to be careful the other way. You have to make sure that that humble piece is really something they understand the weight and the importance of. And um, the hunger and hum- the hunger and hustle part, that they may need to throttle back a little bit, but I think it's the right balance. They're good yeah. words, helpful concepts. Um, and then for fellow pastors, I, I would say, uh, God dreams. Like I have recommended that book. Uh, so many, like I've bought that book for other pastors and just sent it to them after conversations that I've had. And people will be like, do you get paid? Like, no, I don't. It's just, it's like, so I can't imagine going back to doing ministry where it's like, what's important this year? I can't give you a hookup on bulk purchasing. If it's it's, it's that, that big of a need, I can save you a few bucks here and there. But I think that's the, uh, for me, I can't imagine going back to like, like not having an operating system of some kind. So for me, it was just really helpful. And then uh, around us, right. I talked to a lot of people that are um, close to me and far from God. I talked to a lot of people that are skeptical and uh, frankly, the kind of classics of the faith that I would just hand out, you know, evidence that demands a verdict, like that just doesn't ring true in our culture today. It's not the questions people are asking, or at least the way they're asking them. 
Uh, and so there's a book that Mark Clark, who's a pastor up in Canada, uh, wrote called The Problem of God. It's sort of an update to The Reason of God, in my opinion, by Keller, but a, a lot more readable. Um, and it's just so down You're to saying earth. Keller is not super readable I mean, sometimes. If, if you have like a seminary student that's asking <laughs> questions, it's super helpful. Uh, so I, I, I hand that book yeah. out too. So I, those are kind of my three. So young leaders, age three leadership, Brad Lominick, uh, other pastors, God Dreams, Will Mancini, and for skeptics, those questioning uh, the problem of God by Mark Clark. Phil, thanks for being on the podcast and uh, looking forward to seeing what God does. Thank you for listening to My Ministry Breakthrough from the Oxano Podcast Network. You can head over to myministrybreakthrough.com to join the conversation and access our show notes, including the books or other resources mentioned in this episode. If you enjoy hearing these stories of ministry breakthrough, we would be honored if you would subscribe, rate, and even leave a review on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Thanks again for listening.